Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today on your holy Shabbat, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your words received, and Father, that nothing will come forth today that is not directly from you. Use me, Lord, uh, as your vessel. Father, I pray that you anoint me right here, right now, to speak forth the words you've placed on my heart for our mishpacha, for our family, our community here at Congregation Maim Chaim. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right, so this week we're in Parsha Shemot. Uh, we are, are beginning the book of Exodus. Um, this is uh, a really interesting time in Israel's history to be able to watch the progression of the people of Adonai develop. Um, and uh, I'm excited to, to dive through it this year and to dig into uh, the Parsha. Uh, so if you go ahead and open up your scriptures, we'll dive right in. Exodus 1, beginning with verse 1. Literally dive in at the beginning. Now, these are the names of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, who came into Egypt with Jacob, each man with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher. The souls that came out of the land, line of Jacob numbered 70 all while Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, as did all of his brothers and all that generation. Yet B'nai Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew extremely numerous, so the land was filled with them. All right, we'll pause there for a second. So uh, Joseph was 110 years old when he died. Joseph was the youngest of his brothers to die. Not only was he the youngest, he was the first of his brothers to die. Right? So the man that God used to save Israel, the man that God used to protect and provide for the people of Israel, for the beginnings, the foundations of the nation of Israel, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, this man was the one that died earliest out of his brothers. Um, and, and it's really interesting when we look at this because when we get to the next verse, immediately following verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now we know the time frame between Joseph rising to power and Joseph dying and the new Pharaoh rising to power is not a tremendously long period of time. As a matter of fact, we look at it being somewhere between about 86 years and 150 years total that Israel was actually in the land of Egypt. All right? That includes slavery and all. And, and some of you may be doing the math real quick going, but it says they were there for 400 years and Abraham was told it was going to be 400 years and da-da-da. The, the promise of them being a foreigner in a foreign land for 400 years or rather than being slaves to a foreign land for 400 years started with Abraham being called out. And if we look at the totality of number of years of Abraham as a sojourner and uh, all the way to Israel leaving Egypt, it was a total of 400 and change years. Uh, So when we read and it says that they left at, I think it's 420 years of the day or something like that, that's where the calculation comes from. Not from them actually being slaves for 400 years, they were slaves for somewhere around 100 years, give or take. But when we look at all of this, we realize that it's really not that great of a span of time between Joseph's rise to power and the new Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. So it's very unlikely 
likely that Pharaoh knew not of Joseph. As a matter of fact, there are debates in, in, through historians and theologians and Bible scholars and such whether or not the Pharaoh that came after Joseph's death was in fact a new Pharaoh or if he was not in fact the same Pharaoh who had a change of heart. Either way it goes, Pharaoh all of a sudden flipped his switches and decided he didn't like Israel after all. We read a little further in text when we realize the reason that he didn't like Israel after all was because of the fact that it began to grow rapidly and he was afraid of what would happen if a nation would arise and attack Egypt. Would Israel fight with them? And so we go on to verse 11. Uh, this is after, uh, actually we'll go back to verse 9. It says, so uh, he said to his people, the Pharaoh said to his people, look, the people of B'nai Israel are too numerous and too powerful for us. So Israel had grown. I just want you to have this in perspective because in just a few short chapters, we're going to leave Egypt and be standing at the Yom's up the Sea of Reeds, wetting our girdles or whatever they wore because Egypt's crashing down on us. I want you to understand the image of the words being spoken here. He says, look, the people of B'nai Israel are too numerous and too powerful for us. This is the world superpower of the day that is proclaiming that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in the land of Egypt are too numerous and too powerful for them. So he goes on, come, we must deal shrewdly with them or else they will grow even more numerous so that if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and then escape from the land. Verse 11, so they set up slave masters over them to afflict them with forced labor. And they built Pitom and raised, uh, Ramses as storage cities of Pharaoh, uh, for Pharaoh. Uh, tradition tells us, the, the, the Talmud tells us that uh, Pharaoh himself, the way he got Israel to fall prey into slavery is that uh, the nation of Egypt were working to build these, these bricks and start building these mass uh, uh, cities and such. And so Pharaoh himself went down and said, we need help. We need all the laborers we can get to do this work. And Pharaoh himself grabs a bucket and some dirt and a shovel and starts making bricks along with everyone else. And the, the Israelites are, you know, we're, we're gracious people. We're caring. We're loving. Uh, as a matter of fact, you look at the, the Jewish people today, uh, and we are very much known for our mentality of social justice uh, 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 fighting and such. And so uh, the, the tradition says that Egypt that Israel ran in, like, we can't let them do this all themselves. We're living here. We're, uh, you know, we're uh, a part of this country, and the Lord's blessed us here. Let's return the blessing and dig in to start making uh, bricks. And they were working better and faster than everyone else. And so at the end of the day, uh, Pharaoh then went and took taskmasters and put them over, Egypt, over Israel and said, okay, count the number of bricks they made, and that's the number there to put out every single day, no matter what. And they put slave drivers and taskmasters over them. Now, that's just tradition. It's just a neat little story about how it could have happened. It doesn't really matter how it actually happened. What we do know is Israel ends up falling to slavery to Egypt. Verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. They worked them harshly and made their lives bitter with hard labor, like with mortar and brick, doing all sorts of work in the fields. In all their labors, they worked them with cruelty. So the purpose to slay enslaving Israel was to try and hinder their growth as a people, right? Yet, as they worked them, and as they were more and more harsh to them, and as they tortured them more and more, they grew anyways. So it kind of backfired. It didn't really work. So he decides, let's, let's change our strategy. Verse 15, moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra uh, and the other Puah, and said, when you help the Hebrew women during childbirth, look at the sex. If it's a son, then kill him. 
But if it's a daughter, she may live. Yet the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the boys live. So when the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the boys live. Then the midwives told Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are like animals and give birth before the midwife comes in. Uh, so, t- so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied growing new- very numerously because the midwives feared God. He gave them families of their own. So he flipped the switch. He decides he's going to try a different strategy. This time he wants all the boys born to die, right? So he tells the midwives, the Israelite midwives, to kill all the boys. doesn't pan out. They continue to grow. He gets more upset. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Verse 22. But Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, You're to cast every son that is born into the river, but let every daughter live. I look back at this, and over the years, I think back to the number of times I've heard teachings on Exodus 1 and the number of times I've been in Shabbat school and and such and heard these teachings on this passage. And generally speaking, I even went back to look at various commentaries on this passage, and generally speaking, most people look at this and go, Pharaoh told his people to kill the boys of Israel right? And we look at this, typically we're thinking, okay, he just continued what he said to the midwives, except now he told it to all of Egypt, kill the boys of Israel. But in fact, he says, but Pharaoh charged, and I went back to the Hebrew, and the Hebrew reestablishes this concept, but Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying, not just Israel, everybody under his rule, you are to cast every son that is born into the river, but every, let every daughter live. This wasn't now just a, uh, a ruling for the people of Israel to try and stop Israel from growing. He was so desperate to get rid of the children of Israel and the threat that he perceived they represented that he was willing to sacrifice his own people to see it happen. I want you to let that sink in for a minute, okay? So we go back just a, a little bit to verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they, they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of Bnei Israel. They were fearful of the presence of the children of Israel. And we go down to verse 22, the end of the chapter. So much so they were fearful of Israel, so much so that they were willing to kill their own people just to make sure that the Israelites uh, children were also killed, just to make sure they could eliminate the potential perceived threat of what Israel could be should somebody arise against Egypt and they decide they want to be free. And I started to think about this, and I started to think about the reality of, of what this really means. Because what could drive somebody to such a place that they're willing to kill their own people to get their agenda taken care of? Now, we see in history this isn't quite so uncommon, right? We, we see, I mean, you go back to, to Russia, and we look at Stalin, we look at all the things that happened there. We look in Nazi Germany, we look in uh, uh, any of the, the, the coups that have occurred in South America or in Africa or wherever else. It's not so uncommon that this would happen, but what could possibly drive somebody to have such a hatred for another people group that they'd be willing to not only kill them, but kill their own people to make sure that the other group dies. And then I started to think there must be a deeper spiritual reality occurring here. God must be revealing something else, because this is just bleak. I mean, the book of Exodus, like everything we could ever desire to be in a phenomenal action flick is here, right? Uh, As a matter of fact, people have tried and they could do no justice to the words of the book. Um, and, you know, like Lord of the Rings, the books are exciting. They're awesome. And you watch the movies and the movies are awesome. And it, you can kind of dive into it. But every movie that's ever been made on the book of Exodus just doesn't quite do justice. 
But there's everything we could ever desire is in this book. And as we look through, we realize this is a really bleak and dark and despairing, especially the first little bit of the book, dark and despairing and painful and anguishing for the people of Israel and ultimately for all of those who deal with all of the problems that Pharaoh caused because of his hatred for Israel. Because all of the the plagues and the curses that came upon Egypt in the following few chapters, all of those occurred because of Pharaoh's hatred. Now, God wanted to get Israel out of Egypt, and, and God could have just as easily softened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would let them go. But God already knew Pharaoh's heart. God didn't physically reach down and turn his heart into stone to make him hate Israel. He already knew Pharaoh's heart. He already knew Pharaoh's fear. He already knew the hatred that was developing within him. And it wasn't that he made Pharaoh's heart hard as we move through the plagues, but instead that he used the hardening that already existed in Pharaoh's heart to see his purposes come true. See, God doesn't need us to be in alignment with his will for his will to occur. He wants us to be in alignment with his will. And I have no doubt in my mind that had Pharaoh actually repented the first time that Moses came to him, if Pharaoh had actually repented and and legitimately sent Israel out, I have no doubt in my mind that God would have blessed the heart of, of Pharaoh in the action that he took. Because God's will was Israel leaving. It wasn't necessarily all these Egyptians dying, but he was going to show his strength, his might, and his power because of Pharaoh's heart and the predisposition that was already there. And so I started to think about this, and it it brought to mind a a few other things that that I think feed directly into this reality. And and, and we realize Scripture ultimately builds upon each other, right? Genesis is built upon by Exodus, which is built upon by Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. And I jokingly say that, that, uh, or half-jokingly say that the Torah is the Word of God, and everything else in the Bible is God's commentary on God's Word. Um, and, and, And the reality is that that's, to some degree true, the Torah is the foundation. Everything else builds upon that. But as we look through this, we recognize most importantly that the, 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 the direction that the Torah and everything else in the Bible is drawing us to is the person of Yeshua and the salvation that comes through him. And so if that's true, then that means that everything that, that occurs within the Torah must occur for the distinct purpose of bringing about the ultimate will of God, which is the salvation through Messiah. Not just the image of that salvation as Israel is leaving Egypt, but there must be a greater representation that it is pointing us to, a greater foreshadowing that it is bringing us to. So we go back to Genesis, uh, to Bereshit all over again, right? In Genesis 1, we see God creates all of creation. Genesis 2, we see the narrative of God creating Adam and then Eve and everything that goes on and the, the, the commandments he gives them. Genesis 3, we've seen Adam and Eve have already fallen and the Lord now is standing before them and speaking with them. And so in uh, verse 13, the Lord speaks to the woman, to uh, Chava, to Eve, and says, what in the world did you do? Why in the world did you eat this, right? And so Chava immediately, Eve immediately blames a serpent because, you know, she's clearly a good American, and we pass the puck to everybody else. Uh, verse 14 uh, of chapter 3 of Genesis says, Adonai Elohim said to the serpent, because you did this, tricking Eve, because you did this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above every animal of the field. On your belly will you go and dust will you eat all the days of your life. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will crush his hill, or you will bruise his hill. I think it's how the translation say it as well. But he will crush your head, and you will bruise his hill. You will crush his hill. And I started to think about this, and, and I start to realize that there's a, an important connection here. Pharaoh wasn't starting something new by trying to wipe out the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, he was merely continuing something the enemy had already had in plan. Because as much as God has a perfect will and a plan for, for, for humanity, for his creation, the enemy's got a plan for us too, right? 
Which plan do we choose is a different story, but the enemy's got a plan for us too, whether we like it or not, whether we're willing to accept it or not. Uh, it's there, and he's got a plan, and he's diabolical about seeing it come about. So we get here, and we realize that, uh, as we've said before, and if you haven't, go back and listen to the Ruach Encounter series from our Bible study last year on the power and presence of the Spirit of God in our lives today, particularly listen to the first uh, recording, the first podcast of that where we dig into Genesis and this idea of the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh in uh, Genesis and then creation because it wasn't something that just randomly popped on the scene in Acts 2. Uh, the Spirit of God has been around forever, right? And so as we looked into this, we realized that uh, in tracing a few other things, we realized that the enemy who was an angel is kicked out of heaven because he wanted to be God. Right? He wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit on the throne of God, so he's kicked out of heaven. All of a sudden, he's upset because if I can't be like God, nobody can be like God. And here God creates Adam and Eve, and he tells Adam and Eve, hey, you're in my image and likeness. I have created you in my image and likeness. In other words, I have created you to be like me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he created Adam and Eve or you and I to be little gods by any means, but he created us in his image and likeness. We're as like God as we're ever going to be. We're as like God as anything could ever be. Anything created, at least, because God is God. You really can't get much more like God than, you know, being him. Uh, but we're created to be in his image and likeness. And so as we look at creation, we look at Adam and Eve, we realize that at the very beginning, the reason the enemy uh, through the serpent goes to Eve and tries to get her to eat the fruit is because he wants to derail God's plan for humanity and, his, and God's creation and what God has in store for his people. And he goes, hey, if I can't be like God, guess what? Neither can you. And so when God created Adam and Eve, it was like he slapped uh, Satan in the face and Satan said, whoa, I got kicked out of heaven because I wanted to be like you and you're going to create them to be like you and be in heaven with you. I'm not okay with this. And he goes and he, he thinks, hey, I, I, know how to, I know how to solve this problem. I can just make them think that they're not like God in the first place. And he goes in and says, you know, if you just eat of that fruit, what God really knows, not that you're going to die, but what God really knows. So you eat of that fruit, you'll become like him. And Eve goes, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Eve quickly forgets that she's already made in God's image and likeness. You can't get any more like God than what he's created us to be. And Eve eats the fruit thinking, this will make me like God. And Adam eats the fruit thinking, this will make me like God. And God comes down and goes, you stupid idiot, I already made you like me. And he turns to the serpent, and it was my paraphrase, it's probably more what he says to me than Adam and Eve. But nonetheless, uh, he, he turns to the serpent and he says, listen, it says, because of what you've done here, you will be cursed for the remainder of creation. For as long as creation exists, you are cursed out of all of the animals on the earth. And he goes, and the seed of man, speaking of Mashiach, the seed of man will crush the serpent's head. And it's prophecy for when the, the Lord comes back and, and he destroys the enemy for all uh, uh, of eternity. And so he tells, uh, he tells the serpent that the, that, that the seed of, of Adam, the seed of man, the seed of this woman will crush the enemy's head. So now the enemy has to recalculate his plan because it didn't quite go the way he was hoping. He was hoping he'd just derail God's creation. Instead, he did derail God's creation, but God clearly knew what was going to happen and had a plan in place that was already set in place before he created Adam and Eve. It wasn't a plan B. It was the plan in the first place because much like he knew Pharaoh's heart, he already knew our heart and our proclivities for failure. And so as he uh, uh, tells the serpent that the, the, the seed of, uh, of Adam is going to crush his head, uh, the serpent contrives a new plan. Let's destroy the seed of Adam, right? Let's get rid of the seed of Adam. Speaking of Mashiach, Let's get rid of the seed of Adam. Okay, let's wait around and see what happens next so that we can get rid of the seed of Adam. We can get rid of the Messiah. 
All of a sudden, Abraham pops on the scene. Genesis 12, verse 1, Then Adonai said to Abram, Get going out from your land and from your relatives and from the father's house, your father's house to the land that I will show you. My heart's desire is to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. My desire is to bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of a sudden, the enemy goes, I see where the seed's coming from now. And he goes to Abraham. And from this moment forward, his plan has changed, not just to derail God's creation, but he's going to try and derail Messiah. So he goes to the people from whom God is planning to bring Messiah through, the one who will crush the serpent's head. And he goes, okay, now I'm just going to destroy the lineage of Messiah. So we look through Abraham's life and the number of times that Abraham fails and sins. And he goes, oh, see, I've done it. They're, he's done. He's over with. It's, it's, oh, wait, no, God restored him again. Great, okay, we'll try again. And over and over again, he tries to destroy Abraham. He tries to kill Abraham, That God brings him through in faithfulness anyways. Isaac, the same story. Jacob, the same story over and over and over and over again. He tries to destroy the seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to the entire world. And over and over and over again, the Lord triumphs and destroys the enemy's plan. Then we go to Genesis 49, verse 8. This is Israel, Jacob, blessing his sons, particularly Judah. It says, Judah, so you are. Your brothers will praise you. Your hands will be in your enemy's neck. Your father's sons will bow down to you. A lion's cub is Judah from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He crouches, lies down like a lion or like a lioness. Who would rouse him? The scepter will not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he in, to whom it belongs will come. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. And other translations are actually in the Hebrew specifically says, a scepter will not pass from Judah's hand until Shiloh comes, until Messiah comes. And we see all of a sudden the enemy's plan changes again. We don't have to worry about all Israel. Let's worry about Judah. Messiah is going to come through Judah. He's going to be the king of all the world. Let's go to Judah and let's try and destroy Judah and all of Judah's descendancy so the Messiah can't come. And so he continues on trying to derail Judah. And instead, Judah continues to stay with the Lord over and over and over again until we come to uh, the rise of David, Melech David, King David. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, we read about the, the covenant made with David. And David comes into power as the king. And the Lord speaks to him and says, So now thus, and David is from the lineage of Judah, says, So now. Now thus you shall say to my servant David, thus Adonai Zevaot, I uh, thus says Adonai Zevaot, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut you off, uh, cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name as great as the greatest on the earth. I will also set up a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as in the past since the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. So I will give you rest from all your people, all your enemies. Moreover, Adonai declares to you that Adonai will make a house for you. When your days are done and you sleep with your fathers, I will raise up a seed. I'll raise up your seed who will come forth from you after you, and I will establish his kingdom. You will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. Now, we recognize Solomon, in fact, fulfilled some of this in that he built the, the, the house of God and so on, but this isn't speaking specifically to Solomon. This is speaking of a future son of Judah, a future descendant to Judah, who 
who would rise to be the eternal king over Israel, who would rise to be the eternal king over all the world. All of a sudden, the enemy goes, okay, I couldn't stop Judah. Here's David, his lineage. We've narrowed this line down a little more, right? We go from all of creation to Abraham, from Abraham and all of his descendants to Judah, from Judah and all of his descendants, and we keep moving down the line till the, the line gets a little more narrow. Ultimately, Messiah comes anyways, and the enemy gets really ticked off because he's tried to destroy this, and nothing's happened, and nothing's worked. And so we look at this and we realize Pharaoh was nothing, you know, the Ecclesiastes, nothing new on his son. Pharaoh wasn't doing anything new. He hated God's people and he wanted to get rid of them, but it wasn't his hatred naturally. It was an anti-Semitic spirit planted by the enemy to try and destroy the light of Messiah that was to come through the people of Israel. That was to destroy the enemy and his, serp, uh, his the serpent, the enemy himself. It was to destroy the enemy's rule and reign and grip and, 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 and chains that he's got around our lives with sin and despair and pain and anguish and death so that we could be free of Messiah. So what the Pharaoh hated wasn't Israel. It was Messiah that would come through Israel. And so we see that Messiah comes anyways, and in spite of, of the enemy's best efforts, he arises anyways. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Then in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by Adonai into a town into the Galilee named Nazareth, and to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Miriam. And coming to her, the angel said, Shalom, favored one. Adonai is with you. But at the message, she was perplexed and kept wondering what kind of greeting this might be. The angel spoke to her, Do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called Ben Elyon, the son of God. Adonai Elohim will give him the throne of David, his father. He shall reign over the house of Jacob for all eternity, and his kingdom will be without end. 2 Samuel 7 becomes fulfilled in the person of Messiah Yeshua. All of a sudden, the enemy's plans to this point are ruined. But then we go to Romans 11. We go to Yeshua's words actually in the gospel. He says, all Israel will be saved. I will not come back until all Israel proclaims, Romans, Paul says, all Israel be saved. And when they are saved, it will be like life from the dead for the rest of the body of Messiah and the rest of the world. And the enemy goes, okay, cool. I couldn't stop Messiah. But I can stop his people from coming to faith in him. And ever since then, the enemy has turned his attention. The same anti-Semitic spirit that was rooted in the serpent, the same anti-Semitic spirit that was rooted in Pharaoh, the same anti-Semitic spirit that was rooted in the Philistines and so many other peoples throughout biblical history, throughout the Romans, uh, through the Romans and the, the Greeks and so on and so forth, the same anti-Semitic spirit now transfers. Unfortunately now, instead of it transferring to another world leader, we, the body of Messiah, allowed it to take root. Romans says that when all Israel is saved, the entire world will be blessed. Yeshua says he will not come back again. In other words, he will not return to crush the serpent's head until all Israel proclaims, The enemy knows if he can stop the people of God from accepting Messiah, he can stay his execution. And he's turned to us the body of Messiah the people that are supposed to be the representation of Yeshua to the world and specifically to the Jewish people and especially Gentiles in the body of Messiah that are to drive Jews to jealousy for their God, as Paul says in Romans. He's managed to turn us into something that looks so contrary to everything Judaism sees in Scripture, so contrary to what the Jewish Messiah was represented as in Scripture that we have allowed this anti-Semitic spirit to permeate in our very core of theology over the last 2,000 years to where today 
the majority of the Jewish people still do not know Messiah because they look at the ones that are to drive them to jealousy for their God and go, that's a whole other religion. They worship all, a whole other set of gods. They have a whole other set of religious order rules and beliefs. They have entirely new holy days, and the Lord said he won't ever get rid of his holy days. He won't replace his holy days. And they have all, all other holy days. And then we look through modern history, and we look at the pogroms in Eastern Europe, and we look at the Holocaust in, uh, in Germany, and we look at the expulsions of the Jewish people from England twice. We look at the Spanish Inquisition. We look at the Crusades where the, the, the Christians with their, uh, their zeal for the Lord going back to Jerusalem to free Jerusalem from the Muslim reign and restore Jerusalem as a city for God. And along the way, they practice warfare, slaughtering Jewish villages left and right. All of this done under the auspices of the name of Christ. The Jewish Messiah being carried by the nations who were blessed through the seed of Abraham as the promise and covenant made to Abraham was that through his seed the entire world would be blessed. The nations who were blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is Messiah, had over history allowed themselves to step into the feet and the shoes of Pharaoh who hated the people of Israel so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own people to see them die. And we look at the pogroms and how many Russians died while they were trying to kill Jews. And we look at the Holocaust and how many Germans died while they were trying to kill the Jewish people. And we look throughout history and see over and over again all these things that have happened. The spirit of the anti-Messiah, the anti-Semitic spirit that is the definition of who he is. It isn't something that just happened to pop on the scene after Messiah was born, was dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. The spirit of the anti-Messiah has been since the beginnings of sin in the world. Because the anti-Messiah just wants to derail God's plan. And so you've got to understand, Yeshua told us, as followers in Him, that the world is going to hate us, not because of us, but because of He who lives in us. Right? So it doesn't matter what the world around us says, or how much they hate us, or how much they're trying to kill us. We walk firm in the ways of the Lord, because the Lord will bring us through in victory no matter what. And it's time that we, the body of Messiah today, as Messianic Judaism has done for the last hundred years, it is time that we, the body of Messiah, today stand firm and say, no more will the grip of anti-Semitism, the, anti, the spirit of the anti-Messiah rule and reign in the body of Messiah. Instead, we will desire, because we want to see Messiah come back, and we recognize the word says it will not happen until all Israel is saved. We want to see the body of Messiah return back to an understanding that it is through the Jewish people that the entire world is blessed because of the seed that became Messiah. So when we go back to this week's Parsha, to Exodus, and we see in verse 1, chapter 22, it says, But Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying, You are to cast every son that is born into the river, but let every daughter live. The enemy wants you and I to die. Because you and I represent a different body or a different part of the body of Messiah. You and I represent a part of the body of Messiah calling the body of Messiah back in repentance to the root and foundation of what we believe, which ultimately means all Israel will be saved. When Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah, come together to fulfill our calling and our role, the Jew to be a light to the nation and the Gentile to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God, and we work together in the power and presence of the blood of Messiah and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, Israel will be saved and will be like life from the dead. 
And this anti-Semitic spirit that has lingered in creation since Adam and Eve first allowed sin into their life still lingers in the world around us. Just look at what the UN just did to Israel. Look at how many of these UN Human Rights Council votes go against Israel while Iran gets away with murder literally, while Sudan gets away with murder literally, while all of these places, uh, Iraq, you know, look at the number of human rights violations, accusations have been put against Israel. Look at the number that have been put against ISIS by the UN Human Rights Council. Less than five, I think, it is against ISIS. And in one year alone, 22 against Israel. The only country in the Middle East where everybody is allowed to have whatever faith they want and live peacefully is Israel. But somehow they're violating human rights. It's because the same anti-Semitic spirit that tricked Adam and Eve into sinning and falling short of the glory of God is the same anti-Semitic spirit that's trying to keep you and I from recognizing God's plan for the Jewish people and see the Jewish people come to life so that you and I and the rest of the body Messiah can experience the renewal and restoration of Acts 2 revival in our midst, which is the literal life from the dead that Paul speaks of in Romans 11. It's time that we become the head and not the tail, that we, the body Messiah, arise to what we are intended to be, to who we are supposed to be, and faith in the promised Jewish Messiah. It is time that we, the body of Messiah, and in particular Messianic Judaism, as a Messianic synagogue here at Congregation Man Chaim, it is time that we arise and be the leading voice of the body of Messiah, calling God's people back to faith in the promised Jewish Messiah, not the promised Roman Messiah. That we call the body Messiah back to a love of the Jewish people who must come to know Messiah for Mashiach to return. That we recognize we cannot say we want Messiah to come back while shoving his Jewish people to the side at the same time. It's time that we recognize that the same anti-Semitic spirit that caused Pharaoh to kill his own people in order to kill Israel is the same anti-Semitic spirit that has resided within the body of Messiah for 1,700 plus years now. That we have allowed to be a part of this. It's time that we push it aside. We talk about deliverance all the time in the body of Messiah. We want to see people freed from the pains and anguishes of this world. We want to see people freed from sickness, illness, ailment. We want to see people free from, from demonic oppression and from chains and bondage and curses and so on and so forth. But how often do we look at the reality that even though we may be free from a lot of those, we're still bound by an anti-Semitic spirit trying to destroy the message of Messiah to the Jewish people. Trying to keep us from being a part of seeing Mashiach return. And I believe he is coming back, and I believe it is soon, and I'm watching worldwide as Jews are coming to faith by droves. We are approaching the days in which all Israel will be saved, and it will be life from the dead. And God has planted us here on the eastern shore to be a part of that move of God, to be a part of leading our Jewish people on the eastern shore in Mobile and wherever else he draws them from to the light of Messiah, the salvation that comes alone in the blood of Messiah and the power of the Holy Spirit that follows the atonement of the blood of the Lamb so that all may be blessed through the seed of Abraham. It's time that you and I become the head and not the tell as was spoken to and through Abraham for his descendants. You and I, both Jew and Gentile alike, are natural and wild branches grafted in to the root and the fatness of the olive tree. My heritage as a Jewish believer, my people were cut off because of lack of faith and those of us that accepted Messiah were grafted back in. And the nations, because of faith, were grafted in 
And Paul goes on to say, do not become arrogant in who you are now because as easy as it was for you to be grafted in, how much easier, as easy as it was for him to cut off the natural branches, how much easier is it for him to cut off the unnatural? The word the Lord put on my heart for the beginning of this year for our community is to be a beacon of hope, not just through salvation and deliverance, not just through the miracle, miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit, but to be a beacon of hope in this area, calling the body Messiah on the Eastern Shore back to the realities and foundations of where our faith come from in the first place. Back to seeing the Jewish people come to faith. Not because the Jewish people are special by any means. I mean, we can look at Israel in the next couple of chapters and say, we are really not that great at, at following the Lord by any means. But the Lord's promises flow through the descendancy of Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. God didn't bring the nations in to kick the Jewish people out. He brought the nations in so that we could see the fulfillment of the word spoken to Abraham, the covenant connected to him. It's time that we, the body Messiah, recognize that it is more important now than ever before that we return with a heart of repentance to the Jewish Messiah, crying out the words, Avinu Avraham, that Abraham is our father. Not the Roman expression of the body of Messiah, but Abraham is our father. And it's through the reality of the seed of Abraham and the promised Messiah that we can be restored to our heavenly father. Not rip away the Jewishness of the Jewish Messiah to make him be something different, but restore the Jewish people to the Jewish Messiah so that the entire world can experience the blessing of life from the dead. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for speaking words of power, for speaking words that awaken our spirits to the burden you have for your people. Father, I thank you for speaking words that awaken our hearts to the burden you have for the restoration of the body of Messiah, for what you had intended us to be in the foundations. Father, I thank you that you are putting it upon the hearts of both Jew and Gentile alike, bought by the blood of the Lamb, to see Jewish people come to faith in Messiah. Father, I pray that as we move forward through 2018, 2018, as a community, as a congregation, that you will continue to build the influence that we may have in this area, not for our sakes, but for yours, for the good and the glory of your kingdom and your holy name before all men that in the influence you graciously bless us with in the body of Messiah around us, that we will be able to strike a vision for Romans 11 and a return to that mentality of Romans 11 to the body of Messiah on the eastern shore, Baldwin County, Mobile County, and beyond, Lord. Father, I thank you for starting this year out with a good swift kick on the backside that we may be awakened, that we may be energized anew for the calling you have given us as followers of Messiah Yeshua. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.